Good morning. I ask you to turn in your Bibles with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Thankful for the opportunity for parent-child dedication. It's a blessing, the opportunity to worship. Jesus is enough. Why do we need more? Amen. So our prayer this morning is that's the case for each and every heart here. That in our longing for things and for stuff and in life, that we would find that Jesus is the only one that can satisfy that. So as we hope and long for that, we look to God's word and we see here a new sermon series. The title of this sermon series is The Gospel According to Isaiah. And that may be strange for some of you. In the scriptures, we know there are four gospels, right? Books that speak particularly about the time of Jesus, his teaching while he was on earth, the works he did, his life, his death, his resurrection. We know those as the four gospels. And when we talk about those four gospels, we refer to him as the gospel according to John or the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Matthew. And in case you noticed, I just went backwards. I don't know if y'all saw that, but that was not on purpose. I don't know why. And I believe though, as we look to God's word that anywhere you turn in God's word, while those gospels tell us particularly about the life and death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, But anywhere you turn in God's word, including the Old Testament, you find the gospel. You find the gospel. The gospel, the good news of salvation in the Lord's provided and promised Messiah. Now, I don't say that just by mere speculation on my part or just some simple idea that I may have, but I believe that truth is built upon the words of Jesus Christ himself. So if you will... Uh, uh, told him in the first service, a little trick I learned in seminary. You put your finger here in Isaiah and then flip over to Luke's gospel. And by keeping your finger there, you don't lose your place. You see how that works, everybody? Yeah, I went to school for that. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, at the end of the book, Jesus Christ had suffered, he had died, and he has been raised. And in Luke chapter 24, we find the first day of Christ Christ and his resurrection. This is the same Sunday morning. Same Sunday morning, we've now moved to to the evening portion of that. So this is Jesus' first appearance here before his disciples, after his resurrection, all of them together. He had appeared on the road to Emmaus to two, but now he appears to all of them. And as we know by reading the scriptures, Many of the things that Jesus taught while he was on earth, the apostles and the disciples did not understand till after he had been raised. After his resurrection, it all made perfect sense. And so here we see that beginning. Jesus is going to meet with his disciples after his resurrection. And it says here in chapter 24, verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. He's going to connect all the dots that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus is looking to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is divided into three sections. The law, the writings of Moses, 
the prophets, if you will, in our English version of the Old Testament, that's toward the end of the Old Testament, and the writings, or many times referred to as, in this case, as the Psalms, because it's the first book in the writings and the largest portion of it. And so here, Jesus says, all of the Old Testament, I'm referring to all of the scriptures, the law, the prophets, the writing, all three sections, every part of it, Jesus is saying that this, the Psalms, all of these things about me must be fulfilled. And then he says in verse 45, Luke gives a little narrative help here. He says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus gives them the key to understanding all of the Old Testament. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus looks back at the Old Testament, all parts of it from beginning to end, and he said, all of this is about me and what it's teaching here is that I would come, suffer, die, be buried, be raised again, and that must be proclaimed to the nations. All of it is pointing to the gospel. When you look at it, all of it is pointing there. And it's with this in mind then that we flip back, turn back to Isaiah. We turn back to Isaiah. And over the next several weeks, we'll skip across what I call the mountain peaks of Isaiah, of mountain peaks of his prophecy. Chapter 6, chapter 11, chapter 40, chapter 42, chapter 53. We'll skip across these peaks over the next several weeks and see how all of these teach us and show us of the coming Messiah and the promised gospel of Jesus Christ. All of them are pointing us there. So this morning, we'll begin by way of introduction in chapter 1. And while we may bring in some other passages to consider, we're going to look here to verses 18 through 20 in Isaiah chapter 1. Verses 18 through 20. Isaiah writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving the words of God himself, says, Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege we've had to already be together this morning in worship to see these young children and to commit ourselves, the families in our church, to, to raise them up, to be able to sing praises to what Jesus Christ has done for us through the cross and how we understand him to be enough, sufficient for all things and especially our own hearts and our lives. God, we thank you for the privilege to be gathered together. May we not take this for granted just as we must not take your word for granted. So God, as we look to your word this morning, help us. Help us, Father, to, to apply your word to our own hearts. Help us to evaluate ourselves. Help us to not be scared, Father, to look at our own lives and see where we need you and how much we need you, Father. And when we do that, we will find out that we need you everywhere and we need you completely. And so God, through the power of your spirit, be at work in hearts and lives even now so that we can hear your word proclaimed and the good news of Jesus Christ can change our life. All of this we pray through the power of the name of our Savior and Lord. Amen. Isaiah stands at the head of the last major section of the Old Testament in our English Bibles, the prophets as they call. 
Here in our Bibles, we have 15 prophets. Three are considered the major prophets throughout church history. Others, 12, are considered the minor prophets. Hosea to Malachi being those last 12. But understand, they are called major and minor, not based upon the importance of their message, but based upon the size of the book. It's just that simple. The three major prophets are the larger prophets, the larger writings, the larger books. And those are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Here, the years that they prophesy are some 300 years looking through the time of Israel, through God's word. And Isaiah stands near the beginning of that era. And though he is the longest, so he comes first, he also sets the agenda for the whole, if you will. Isaiah, through his message to the people, are going to set the agenda for how the prophets understand things, kind of giving that rubric or that formula, showing how God's judgment is going to come because of sin, but even though he will judge his people, he will not ultimately and finally divorce them. He may discipline them, but he will bring them back to himself because God always keeps his promises. But if you're outside of the Lord, if you're not trusting in him and not depending upon him, then you need to know that judgment is coming for you. Isaiah is the one who sets that standard and calls us to the Lord, even in our rebellion and sin. Isaiah was a prophet to the tribe of Judah. Israel, of course, was 12 tribes. The 10 tribes to the north had already turned away from God and been ransacked by foreign countries because of their idolatry, God says. It was judgment. The two tribes to the south, Judah and the smaller one, Benjamin, had stayed faithful up until this point. But as we get to the prophet Isaiah, we recognize, we recognize that Judah had started to become unfaithful. Now, Judah was the tribe in which God had already promised the Messiah would come through in Genesis 49 through the blessing of Jacob. The lion will come through the tribe of Judah, and he was that one. So you look to Judah's remaining faithful, but at this point, Judah is starting to turn away from God. And though they had not fallen up to here to this point by other nations, soon that was coming if they didn't turn around. They had turned away from God, so Isaiah begins to prophesy. Prophesy giving God's words, God speaking through him. And hence we see because of Israel's un, uh, because of Judah's unfaithfulness, we begin to see the prophecy start. In Isaiah chapter 1, starting off here in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I ha have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Though God had blessed them, Though he had cared for them, though he had given them everything they needed, though he had provided in every way for them, though he had watched over them in every possible way imaginable, the goodness of God had cared for his people and never turned his back on his people, never, never let go of a promise, but always kept them. Though God had always been faithful, the people of God had turned away. Though God had been good to them, the people of God had turned back. And this breaks, breaks God's heart, if you will. They've turned away from the one who truly cared for them. In fact, it's been such a way that the prophet Isaiah says is, is that even animals are smarter than you, right? He says even the ox uh, knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. Even the animal knows back where to come back. Even the animal knows the one who feeds them. At the Powell house, just recently we've had a little cat. Now, we're not cat people. I want to let you know that. But I don't like to let things starve. So you have a cat and the little cat has come to the back door of the house. And guess what we did? We fed it. 
Guess where the cat still is? Right now to this moment, if you drive to the back door of our house, guess what's sitting there? A little cat. We haven't even named it yet. Why? Because it knows where the food is, right? It knows where to come to. And what Isaiah says here is that the people of God have become even dumber than the animals. God has blessed them. He's cared for them. He's provided everything for them. He's walked through the wilderness with them. He's kept his promises at every step. He's always watched over them. They know he is good. They know he's been faithful. Yet, they've turned their back on him. Yet, they've turned away. And because they've turned away, he says in verse, verse 7, because they've turned away, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very present, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Here, because you have turned away, you've lost everything. Not only that, he says up in verse 5, Why you, will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it, not bru but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. In other words, you've turned away from God, and because of that, you've lost all of your strength. You've been beat up from head to toe. There's sores and there's wounds, but you're walking around like everything's okay. From head to toe, because of your sin, you've been beat up and you've got sores, open wounds there. And you're letting them fester and you're letting them continue. And you're acting like everything is all right. It would be as if I'm standing up here bleeding from my face and going, what are y'all worried about? What are y'all concerned for? Not only that, your pride and your arrogance, he says. You've got your house right in the middle of a city that's burned to the ground. And you act like everything's fine. You've put, your, you've put your little tent right in the middle of a vineyard that no longer produces. And you act like everything's all right. Why in the world do you do that other than your own pride and your own selfishness? You want to make people think you're fine. You want to make people think you're okay. Let you, let you're walking around with wounds that have not healed. And you're acting like everything's fine and the city is burnt down around you, the Lord says. Ultimately, this is what sin does. Sin is, makes us dumber in some ways than even animals, the scripture says. Sin makes us believe that we're okay whenever we are hurting and in pain and in desperate need of a doctor to strengthen us and fix us up. Sin makes us prideful and arrogant when everything's burning down around us and we think we're okay and fine because our house looks pretty good. Here's what Isaiah says is the problem that we all have been in this spot. Now, recognize. Recognize the case here. Because of sin, they have no strength. Because of sin, they're trusting in themselves. And because of their pride and their arrogance, the Lord says in verse 9, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, look at what we deserve. Because of our rebellion against God and not following after him, even though he has been good to us over and over and over again, yet we've turned our back on him. We're walking around with wounds that are festering and acting like everything's fine. We got a house that looks pretty good, but the city's burned down around us, right? And we're walking around like all of these things. What we deserve is Sodom and Gomorrah. And what we recognize here is that God is capable of that. He's pointing them to say, see the judgment that came there? That's what you deserve. That's what we have because of our sin and because of our rebellion. What we deserve are those things. We are at God's mercy. 
for him to do with us as we, as we have done to him, if he desires. But even though sin has come and we have rebelled, and even though our strength is nothing because of our sin, and even though our pride looks foolishness before a mighty and wonderful, glorious, and good God, and even though we deserve death and judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, God is going to respond with graciousness. We deserve Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's going to give us graciousness. So he says, even though you deserve those things, he looks at his people and he says, now come. Come. Let's reason together. Come. Let's talk about this. In the midst of this, instead of the judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah, instead of what we deserve, instead of our foolishness has, has, has bought for us, he says, instead, let's reason together. He gives an invitation for us to draw near. Now, he just told them that because of their sins, the way they've been trying to draw near to God is not good enough. It's just a show. He says this in Isaiah when he says uh, that I do not delight in the blood of bulls or goats or lambs uh, uh, of all these things that you have brought, these burnt offerings of rams. You come to me with that worship because your heart is far from me. Those things are meaningless. You're just killing animals. You're not offering up anything of true worship to me. It's not those things aren't good. He says, no more vain offerings do I want in verse 13. I cannot endure the iniquity in solemn assembly any longer. The Lord says, you've gathered together in this solemn assembly, yet sin is rampant amongst you. You've turned away from me, and you try to get near me by offering up the blood of a bull or a goat. He says, it's not working. I don't want it. I don't desire it. It's not good. In fact, the Lord is even going to say, I don't even want to hear your prayers anymore in verse 15. You deserve judgment. But then he turns. And the moment you think judgment is coming, the moment he may say, I'm done with you. I've tried and I've tried and I've been good and I've been good and I've done this and I've done that. The moment he wants to say, the moment you may think he looks at you and says, I'm done, I'm through, no more. I've only been good to you. I've only been faithful to you. I've only watched over you. Everything you have is because of me and you have constantly rebelled and you've constantly turned and you've constantly walked away from me and you've constantly denied me. The moment we get to that point and we think it would be right if the Lord God Almighty says, I am through with you. He invites us to come near. Come. Let's reason together. Let's talk about this. Please, brothers and sisters, do not oversee the grace of God and his goodness to you in the mere fact that you're still alive even now. And today in this room, the Lord is not giving judgment to you, but saying, come, talk with me. Let's talk about this. Let's reason together. Instead of judgment, he calls us to draw near to him and listen to what I'm offering, the Lord says. Here's what I want to give to you. The gospel message is something for you to hear. The good news is something for you to hear. Jesus says it's what must be proclaimed. So come draw near, let's reason together. In other words, what the Lord is giving here is not some sales pitch. He's not simply just trying to present something and, and shine it up to look good to you, to win over some people on his side. That's not what he's doing. 
He's not simply just offering this up as some infomercial, as some possibility for your life that you could do and give. You can take it or you can leave it. The Lord is putting it here at this point and saying, I am going to give you the only hope you can possibly find. I'm not trying to sell you on anything. I'm trying to save your life. I'm not trying to convince you to turn into something. I'm trying to save your life because everything you're doing is wrong and you've turned against me and you've rebelled and death and judgment is coming. I'm trying to save you. Come, let me talk to you about this for a moment. Statement here of good news, like the proclamation of a king. It's true. It is good. Let's talk about this. So no need for us this morning to flower up this language. There's no need for us to find some fancy rhetoric, if you will. There's no need for me to put together some glorious, finely tuned sermon, if you will. Surely I want to hold your attention. Surely I want you to listen to me. But we don't come with lofty speech, the Apostle Paul says. We don't come in great wisdom. I'm not trying to show off to you how much I know. What I'm trying to do is convince you that in Christ and the Lord God Almighty, that is the only hope you have. That if you look anywhere else, you can't find it. You deserve judgment. You deserve death. What I'm trying to do is not sell you on something. I'm trying to convince you of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what happens so often for us is that when we get to preaching sometimes, we try to build crowds up. And so in that sense, we build those things. And so we don't use words like repentance. And we don't want to talk about things like sin. And what I'm telling you, the Lord is saying, that's the point that we get like Judah, where we offer up offerings that are meaningless and we do worship that's useless. When we don't want to talk about the things of the gospel and the glorious blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, when we get to that place is the point that what we do is futile and God despises it. And so we don't do that here. The apostle Paul says in second Corinthians chapter four, when he's writing about these things, he says, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. We don't lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sakes. For God said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We don't practice underhanded ways. I'm not trying to con you into, con you into something. I'm not trying to be cunning and be... be, be uh, trivial with these things. I'm not trying any of that. What I'm trying to tell you is the Lord says, your sins are great, but my mercy is more. Come, let's talk about this. And as Paul says, that's why I don't try to be fancy. I just simply say to decide to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. That's all we have to offer. So draw near I've got some good news for you, the Lord says in Isaiah 1. I've got some good news, though your sins be as scarlet, though your sins be as scarlet, though your sins be like crimson. And all of us in this room have been at this point, maybe some of you are still. For the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. Isaiah 53 
All we like sheep have gone astray. Sin has crept into every one of our hearts and we've all rebelled against God and his goodness and faithfulness. And sin, when we look at sin, we need to know that sin is absolutely unreasonable. It doesn't really make any sense ultimately. It's irrational. Sin is insane. Think about it for a moment. How many of you have ever had a kid? My kids are perfect, never done anything like this. How many of you have ever had a kid that you tell them to do something and right in front of your face they do the opposite? Right? Good, none of you. But you can imagine. (laughs) What insanity is it that we look at the good and glorious God who made the heavens and the earth, who holds everything in the palm of his hand, who fashioned everything according to the goodness of his pleasure and his will. We look at him and we do the opposite of what he says. Sin is that and that's insane. And what happens here? This is what the Lord is saying. Look at your life. I've been good to you. The ox even knows to come back home and you don't. It's unreasonable. It's irrational. But it is a tyrant. Sin is a tyrant. And it's looking to destroy you. The moment you think you've got it under control is the moment it will dominate you to death. And not only is sin looking to destroy you and your life, it's looking to destroy everybody around you. And there's testimonies of that over and over again in this room. So why do we continue to go back what's only seeking to destroy us? Come, let's reason together. Your sins are like scarlet, but they can be whiter than snow. Come, let's reason together. All of us are dirty and inappropriate before God. And that represents the scarlet nature of our life and our sins. And if white represents cleanness and righteousness, we could not be farther from that because we're scarlet and crimson. But back in verse 15, he says, when you spread out your hands, I'll hide my face from my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. You've been trying to earn my favor just by slitting the neck of some bulls and goats and oxen. The Lord says, I don't care about that. That only demonstrates how great a sinner you are. And even though we sing, sin had left a crimson stain. Oftentimes, many of us don't think of the wickedness of our sin or the evil nature of it. The Lord is saying, it will destroy you. Come, let us reason together. If you'll present yourself as what you are, if you'll recognize yourself as a sinner stained with crimson, scarlet, far from the purity that God desires and wants in our life, if you'll recognize yourself as you're a sinner and you come to him, Confess that you cannot clean yourself. Confess that you cannot wash yourself white. Confess that you have no power and ability to clean yourself up, but only God can. Repent of your sins. That's the core of all of this. If you'll come back to him, he's saying, listen to me, let me reason with you. If you will just notice and understand that your sin has left you broken and undone, it has dominated you and it has put you to death. If you'll just recognize that today and come to me, I'll wash you whiter than snow. Isaiah begins with an invitation. God will take away your sins and cleanse you. 
God will wash you whiter than snow. Your sin had left this scarlet crimson stain. He'll wash you whiter than snow. And how will he do this? He does not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. There's no sacrifice that you could offer up in this place or on this place. But what he does say is this. There is a sacrifice that will come. There is one who will give of himself. There is one who will provide of himself. And don't think you've got to turn to the New Testament for this. Just look to Isaiah 53 where he says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. With his wounds we are healed. And we know as we point this toward, as the scripture teaches us, it's talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself. That there is a sacrifice that God accepts. There is one that will wash us whiter than snow. And the blood shed for us by the Savior, Jesus Christ, is the blood that can cleanse us from all our sins, the Scripture says. There is one. Come, let's reason together. You don't have to stay in your sins. You don't have to be under the judgment of God. But grace can reign in your life through the provision of a Savior that God himself will provide and his blood will wash you whiter than snow. Let's reason together on this. Why would you turn anywhere else? Why would you go anywhere else? Just as Jesus says in Luke 24, what the scriptures are teaching us is that the Christ would come, suffer, be buried, raised again, and that must be proclaimed. And what we do today is proclaim that to you. The question is, Will you remain stubborn, rebelled, rebellious, and unyielding? Or, as verse 19 says, will you become willing and obedient to him? It's all here, by the way. The gospel is all here. God, the one who has created us and made us and blessed us, gave promise to us and kept every single one of those promises. He is good, but instead of following after him, man has rebelled from him and turned away from God, loved their sin instead of loving his goodness. But yet God sends a Messiah, a Christ who would come. And though your sins be as scarlet, this Christ would shed his blood to wash them as white as snow and make you righteous and clean. So the response here, God, man, Christ's response of the gospel is this, come to him. Will you remain away from him? Will you remain under the tyrant of your sin? Will you remain rebellious to God? Or will you repent, be willing and obedient and follow him? And if you will, your sins will be forgiven. Though they're like scarlet, he will wash you clean. He will wash you clean. Verses 19 and 20. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For those who come to God confessing their sin trusting in him and being washed whiter than snow through the blood of Christ Jesus. The goodness of God is never ending. In fact, you'll never get to the bottom of that bucket if you know what I'm talking about. It's never taxed. It's never waning. God's goodness will go on and it'll go on. And what you maybe can testify to in this room is that it gets sweeter every single day you live. And it's not as if there's more goodness there or, or, or what have you. It's just a sense every single day you live, you know that the very breath I breathe and the fact that my heart is beating is only because of his grace and mercy in my life. And every day I live is good to him. And it gets sweeter as the days go by. And that is true. But I want you to know that while that redeeming love of God has been your theme until you die, it will be your theme for all eternity as well. 
Because just as sweet as it is this side of heaven, it only gets sweeter on the other side. When we realize finally and ultimately and sweetly and completely that Jesus Christ is everything. And there's not a moment in our life forever that we're not praising him, honoring him and glorifying him. And there's not a moment forever that we're not satisfied completely in him. He only gets sweeter. If you're willing and obedient, don't be rebellious. Because what happens when you're rebellious and you remain in your sin is that you don't know the goodness of God, but only the sword, it says. Only the judgment. The call this morning from Isaiah chapter 1. Throughout Isaiah, throughout the prophets, throughout the New Testament, the call this morning remains the same. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be whiter than snow. If you would just turn to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Because in your kindness and goodness, you have not left us in our sin, but you have sent a Savior to redeem us and save us. So, Father, I pray that even now you'll be breaking down the arrogance and pride that may be in our hearts. You'll be breaking down the arrogance and pride, Father, that we can do this in and of ourselves, that we can accomplish this on our own, that we can somehow save ourselves and wash ourselves clean, Father. But let us know this morning, every person here, every heart represented in this room through the power of your spirit, teach them and show them today. The only way their sins can be forgiven is by trusting in Christ and turning from them. And though they be scarlet, though they be crimson, you, Father, can make them whiter than snow. Let not a rebellious heart still stand before you in this room, Father, but break our hearts to see our desperate need of Christ and help us to turn, to flee to Christ as the only one who can wash us the only ones who can cleanse us, the only one who can give us life and give us hope and give us satisfaction. Help us to turn and flee to Christ for that. And if you're here today and your heart is still rebellious toward God and sin is a tyrant over you, I pray right now that God will show you that. And today will be the day when you say no longer. I've heard the reasoning of the word. I've heard the truth of the gospel. And I believe that my only hope is in Christ. I pray this morning that each and every heart would say that. And maybe it's you. and Maybe it's the first time. But God, don't let them be in a house thinking everything's fine when everything's burning down around them. So if you're here and today you want to give your life to the only one who can save it. You want to be washed clean. I'll be standing here at the front. People will be waiting to talk to you about these things. Come today. Reason with us, Scripture says, and find forgiveness for your sins. Don't be rebellious or stubborn any longer, but give yourself to the goodness of God, and you will find one who is gracious to keep you, hold you, change you, save you, love you. If you're here today and you need a church home, a place where the gospel is proclaimed, we pray we will be that. We'd love for you to come and be a part of us. Now we get to sing one of the great songs in the Christian faith as we stand together. Let's stand together and sing.